0: This is the Life Church podcast. For more messages, to watch our live stream, or to find other events, go to LifeChurchNow.org. This is our eleventh year in a row where we've been doing Revolution Thanksgiving, and I tell you what—you um, know—it takes in 2020. Everything is different in 2020, so it looks a little bit different than in years past. Or we—you were basically tripping over bags in the lobby because we kind of designed it that way so you could trip over bags in the lobby. Because we wanted you to take a bag and deliver it, you know, and uh, but but still, you know, the, the thing I love in a t- in a season when when uh, there is so much that's unpredictable, there's so much that is not knowable right now about the future of just just future in general, of employment, of economics, of church life. You know, there's so much that's so different now because of 2020. Um, there's a lot of churches that are that are trying to I mean I'm not casting blame I understand it's just a very difficult season but we're just pulling back you know and and we feel the strong conviction here that that's God's not called us to pull back even though it seems difficult it seems challenging we've got this calling on our life that we're still meant to be on mission and that's why even though in the middle of a pandemic and and reduced numbers of attendance and all that kind of stuff we're still doing a servolution outreach it's part of who we are we years and years ago we said that we asked ourselves this question we that we should ask ourselves this question that if the church was to leave our community would our community miss us and we said we need to answer that question in in a way that they would miss life church if life church was to close its doors pack its bags and be out of here and this is a way that we do that it's by serving them Servolution means basically a revolution of service. We're saying we are going to show people what it looks like to be a Christian. We're going to show people what it looks like to be a follower, not just to have a different set of values and way of thinking or or belief system. We're going to show what it looks like. What does a Christian look like, fleshed out? And a Christian, what a Christian looks like, fleshed out, is a person walking with a couple red bags in their hands and say, "Hey." We don't know you at all, but, but we love our community and we love Jesus. And because of that, we want to give you this. That's what it looks like. And so thank you so much for being that church. You guys are amazing. I'm so proud to be leading in this church. You guys are just, just make me incredibly proud. And so we're going to start a series today called Freedom. And today I want to talk to you about freedom from religion. Um <clears throat> 14 years or so after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we kind of catch up to this middle-aged man by the name of Paul, the Apostle Paul. And he's boarding a ship, and with him he's got his buddy. Uh, He's probably a little bit taller than him and a little bit more outgoing than him, Barnabas. And they're going to get on a ship, and they're going to travel about 100 miles, a little bit west, northwest, towards uh, a region called Galatia. Now, Galatia is not a city. I have a a map here. Galatia is a region. It's this region of what is today eastern Turkey. And so it's divided into two different sections. Uh, There was northern Galatia and southern Galatia. And so this is right here, southern Galatia. In fact, in the book of Acts, if you read through the book of Acts, you're going to find four cities that uh, it talks about. In the southern part of Galatia, the cities of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. We're gonna talk about those four cities today. So the Apostle Paul and, and and Barnabas, they head towards Galatia, they land here, then they take a hike about a hundred miles to the city of Antioch. And when they arrive into Antioch, they begin to preach the gospel. We find this in Acts chapter 13 and 14. They're preaching on the gospel of grace. these different cities but specifically they stop in Antioch and they're explaining that that, uh, that grace is actually greater than religion. That what they have tried, they go into the synagogue to preach in the synagogue on this particular Sabbath day, that what they have tried to do in their life to, to somehow earn their favor with God, to somehow get closer to God, to somehow be able to be saved because of the works that they're doing, that when Jesus came and he died on the cross and he shed his blood and he was raised back to life again, that Jesus has accomplished what the law of Moses could never accomplish. In fact these are paul's words in acts chapter 13 verse 38 he says therefore my friends i want you to know that through jesus through jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you that's his message he doesn't add anything else to it he doesn't give any more to it he just says through jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you that there is forgiveness of sins through jesus christ and then he makes a little bit of a contrast. He says, through him, everyone, now he's talking about everyone, right? Like, what does everyone mean? Not just Jews. Everyone, Jews and Gentiles, everyone. Everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification that's being made right with God. And then here's a contrast. You were not able to obtain under the law of Moses so this is the comparison that he's making the law of moses versus faith in jesus and for our purposes today it's a it's a, it's the comparison between grace and religion so paul starts preaching this and he just essentially tells him listen jesus has already accomplished it jesus has taken care of it through jesus we have freedom that's the, that's the cry of, uh, of the message of the gospel, that there is freedom. Freedom from, from, from religion, freedom from guilt, freedom from shame. Every sin gets washed away through Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is preaching. So he's talking to a bunch of people who have spent their lives trying to earn their way towards, towards a right relationship with God. If you do this, if you don't do this, if you do this, if you don't do if you follow this ritual, if you follow that rule, you will be in with God. And so they hear him preach and they like what they're they you know kind of interested in what he has to say. Some people start believing so they invite him back the next sabbath to preach again and uh, they want they want to hear more about this gospel of grace. But the problem is that there's some religious leaders that they, they get a little jealous. The Bible tells them that they they heap abuse on them. That's what the Bible how the Bible refers to it. They're heaping abuse on. Them. So Paul gets up that that's, that sabbath morning and He starts to preach and they heckle him and they incite a mob and and then Paul and Barnabas are basically run out of the city of of Antioch. And so then they shake the dust off their feet and then they take a hike, a 90-mile hike from Antioch to Iconium. And basically the same thing happens in Iconium. There's these you know, they start preaching. There's uh, people like what they're, what they're hearing. They start believing what Paul says. There's some religious leaders that get jealous and they start, uh, you know, inciting a mob. And Paul catches wind that there's this plot to stone he and Barnabas. And so they hit the road again. And they take another trip. This time they go from Iconia, Iconium to Lystra. It was just an 18-mile journey from there. And they end up in the city of Lystra. Now, Lystra's what we know about Lystra is Lystra is the hometown of Timothy, one of Paul's disciples, one of the people who actually came to know Jesus through Paul's ministry there in Galatia. And so they, they uh, start preaching in, in, in Lystra, and the same mob, so there's this mob that's in Antioch, and they follow him to Iconium, and then they go to Lystra. That same mob decide they don't like what he's talking about. They don't like this contrast that he's making between grace and religion, and so they do something about it, and this is what it says happens to Paul in verse 19 of Acts 14. They stone Paul and dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. They're so upset at his message that they stone him. I mean, like they they throw rocks at him. So much so that he passes out and they think he's dead and they drag his body to the outskirts of the city because you don't want people dying in the city. So you take him to the outskirts of the city so he can just finish dying off there. He's out cold, he's left for dead. And there's some new believers, they come along, they start praying and suddenly he comes to again. (laughs) Paul just wakes up. I mean, you could read this all in Acts chapter 14. He wakes up and it tells us he goes right back into the city of Lystra again. But this time he decides, you know, this is kind of, Kind of a difficult area, so I'm going to go on. And so he goes from Lystra to another town named Derby. It's about 60 miles away, and he ends up in Derby. Now, this is why I love Paul, okay? The Apostle Paul, he just got stoned, like rocks thrown at him, knocked him out cold. People thought he was dead, and then the next day he takes a 60-mile hike to the city of Derby. I mean, Paul's my hero when I think about it. He preaches in Derby. Again, there's a lot of people that respond to the gospel. They love it. And then what he does, he decides, after he preaches in Derby, he decides he doesn't just run away. He says, okay, man, this has been a tough missionary journey. This, in fact, is called Paul's first missionary journey. It's been a tough missionary journey. Let's, let's find a shortcut back to Antioch and Syria. That's not what he does. Instead, the Bible tells us that he goes from Derby back to Lystra, back to Iconium, back to Antioch, and then back. Look what it says in verse 21 of Acts 14. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. You pull it up on verse 20, 21, Acts 14, 21. Catch that. Oh, it's frozen. It's not there. <laughs> so, this is what I want us to see as a context as we study through Galatia. Galatians, I want us to see as a context that very, that very uh, idea, that Paul is going and he's preaching in these areas, and he's preaching this gospel of grace, and he's contrasting it to the religion that they have been following all of these years. They don't like him for it, so they persecute him, and sometimes they even try to put him to death. And so that's, that's what's happened. That's the ministry that Paul makes. Then in Galatia, years later, he's writing to them, and these people, they've, they've received this gospel of grace. They believed in what Paul had to say. They believed that Jesus is a way towards salvation, but now they're starting to kind of go back a little bit in, in, in their belief. They're starting to go back to this prison cell of religion, to earning their way towards God, towards working, towards becoming good with God. And then that's not all. They... They're beginning to tell new believers that as well, that it's not just faith in Jesus Christ, but it's faith in Jesus plus following some rituals and following some rules and doing some some things that you have to do that gets you saved, that makes you good with God. Now, these people, they hadn't given up on Jesus. They They still believed in Jesus, but they were attaching a religious system to Jesus, and Paul is not happy with that. Paul does not like that. In fact, he's infuriated by that. There's a sense of exasperation and frustration in uh, in Galatians as you read through it. Because what Paul's tried to make super clear is that Christianity is not a religion. I'm going to say that again. Christianity is not a religion. Now, you may have heard differently. You may think, well, of course, it's one of the major religions of the world, but Christianity... What the Bible teaches is not a religion. That's what Paul is trying to communicate. And he's noticing that these believers who once believed by faith are now turning back to religion. That's frustrating him. And so this is what he says in verse chapter, uh, chapter 1, Galatians 1, verse 6. He says, I am astonished. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting. You see, that he's, he, there's this demonstrative language. I'm astonished. I'm just blown away that you're doing this, that you're so quickly deserting. And He uses this military word, which literally means to switch sides, that you were on this team and now you're on that team. I'm just astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel, Paul says, this different gospel he's talking about is this religion that they're adopting, this Jesus plus kind of thing, right? He says that's no gospel. It's not good news. The word gospel means good news. He says, that's not good news. It's not good news to to have Jesus and then start adding a bunch of rituals and rites and rules. That's not good news. That's bondage. That's, That's prison. He says, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion or trying to pervert. And he uses the word pervert for anything that we start adding to Jesus. So if you have Jesus plus anything, it's a perversion. That's what he's trying to say. Trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. When Paul says some people here in this passage, what he's doing is he's referencing a group of people called Judaizers. <clears throat> these were they weren't against jesus they were actually for jesus they believed in jesus they just didn't feel like jesus was enough so for them it was for them it was jesus plus religion that's what made it enough it was jesus plus adopting the rules and the laws of judaism that's what made you saved and that's what paul is talking about in this in fact it might help us understand you know the religious system that he was trying to that they were trying to attach to jesus in judaism there was over 600 laws laws that you needed to follow now some of these laws were added later in time you know you had the 10 commandments but then you have a whole bunch of other laws 600 plus laws were in judaism these laws are divided into three different categories you have for example the ceremonial laws okay these are laws that 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 you know dictate sacrifices rituals offerings there were some food restrictions one of the one of the things that ceremonial laws dictated was circumcision okay so if you were a good jewish person you would become circum a man would become circumcised right and so these judaizers were saying hey you know we're so glad these new believers we're so glad you've come to church we're so glad that you've accepted jesus by faith jesus loves you you should you should follow jesus Hey, but there's one other little thing. You know what? To really, really, really be saved, you got to get circumcised. (laughs) That that wouldn't even be a great church growth strategy in our time. (laughs) It definitely wasn't one back then either. They were imposing this law. You have to be circumcised. Another category of laws that they had was civil laws. These are laws that were specific for the nation of Israel, rules of government and such. And Jesus, when Jesus came, he made it clear. You know, that's there was a there was a time and a season in which these laws applied to Israel, the nation of Israel. But now that he's been crucified and resurrected, those laws do not apply universally anymore. And yet they were teaching that that everybody needed to abide by the civil laws of Judaism, even Gentile converts. And then there was the moral law. This is this would be the third category. And this is what most of us think of when we think of the law. We think of the Ten Commandments. And these are like certain ethical standard of behavior for us to follow, most of which are still applicable for us today as standards of behavior. This moral law has a purpose, though. And the problem is that we often think that the purpose of the moral law or the Ten Commandments is to save us. That if you could just follow the Ten Commandments, you will be saved but they don't. In fact, Paul addresses that, says that it cannot save you. Following the law cannot save you. Look what it says in Galatians 2. A person is not justified. That's made right with God. A person is not justified by the works of the law, but by, the, by, by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified, again, made right with God by faith in Christ and not not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one. How, 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 how few? How few is no one? Like, like no one, right? <laughs> like no one will ever, not just now, not just past, not just future, not even pre- No one in all time will ever, ever be able to be justified by the law. I mean, the law cannot keep us from sinning and the law cannot save us from sin. And what the law does is it helps us recognize it makes us conscious of sin. It helps us us realize that we need a savior. It helps us realize that that we cannot fix ourselves We cannot justify ourselves. Only God can justify us through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the law does. And so Paul explains that adding all of these religious requirements, this Jesus plus whatever, whether it's human effort, good rule keeping, a checklist of things that you can do and you cannot do, none of that, none of that will save you. In fact, Paul calls it a perversion to the gospel. That's what he calls it. So in Galatians, he helps us understand why he's so worked up about this. He says, for if righteousness, Galatians 2.21, if righteousness, that is being made right with God, if you could be made right with God, if righteousness could be gained through the law, meaning if you could follow the rules and follow them well and follow them in such a way that you never fail, if that's possible... Then, then you can be made right with God. If you can make yourself, if you can follow all the rules to the T, then you can be made right with God. That's the idea here. He says, if that's possible, then this is what he says Christ died for nothing. Christ died for nothing. And this I mean, this, the, if you go into the Greek on this here, where Christ died from, this, this in the Greek is, is said with all kinds of deep-seated emotion. He is angry. He is upset. He's over the top. How can you say this? How can you possibly follow him and then turn your back? Don't you see? You're missing it. That's how Paul is talking about this. He's incredibly offended by this. So Paul tells us a little bit about what the law does. In Galatians 3, he says, So the law was our guardian, that is our guide, until Christ came that we may be justified by faith. The law shows us our sin and our need for faith in Jesus. You see, Paul's making this case that grace, grace is greater than religion. Grace is greater than religion. Religion. But don't go adding religion to Jesus or to grace because it perverts it. it, makes it of no value. It undermines the sacrifice of Jesus. In fact, the word religion, that's exactly what it means. The it word religion comes from the word uh, religio, which is a Latin word, which basically means to bind, to tie up and bind together. In its original it comes from, from it comes from this idea of bondage or slavery So this would be a good definition really for us as Christians thinking about contrasting grace with with religion. Religion would be man's attempt to appease God and earn his favor by working hard and being good enough. Now, when I read this definition of religion, you would think that most people in the world think, well, of course, that's what religion is. It's us trying to make God happy. Because God's up there with this, with this like sledgehammer just waiting to hit us over the head when we make a mistake. And so we're just working real hard to make God happy. That's what most people think is religion. If you just do enough good things and less bad things, then you're going to be in with God. And nope, Paul says that's not, that's, not, that's not Christianity. That's religion. Christianity says that Jesus took our sins on him. He paid the price on the cross. Christianity says that we're not made righteous by being good enough, by working hard enough. We're not made righteous. We're we're, We're made righteous simply by what Jesus did on the cross. And when he stands before the Father, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. So when you accept Jesus Christ, when you come here to Life Church and you pray that prayer, say, Jesus, come into my life, I surrender my life to you. What you're doing is you're taking on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and now God looks at you, and yeah, there's all kinds of garbage in your life that's been in your life. God looks at you and says, Yeah, I see that that's there, but that's been wiped clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. His righteousness is now your righteousness. That's the gospel. And that's what Paul's preaching. And Paul is offended that they've turned away from that. And so, like this church in Galatia, a lot of us have the tendency of returning to religious practices and religious ways of thinking there's a few reasons for that first religion offers a method of measurement religion offers a method of measurement we like to measure things don't we i i especially i'm always measuring stuff you know but we like to measure things we like to measure ourselves against other people we like to look at ourselves like i'm a i'm a good christian compared to that person over there Oh, but that person over there is a little bit better. I wish I was kind of like that person. We like to measure that way. That's how we are. And what religion does is it offers the ability, it offers, offers you a method of comparing yourself, of measuring yourself to others. Um, uh, Muhammad Ali was interviewed by Reader's Digest in 2001. This was right around, right around the time when, um, when the movie Ali, Will Smith, you know, was, was making that movie. And they ask him this question. This is the question they ask Muhammad Ali to: What does your religion mean to you? Now, now keep in mind, Muhammad Ali, by this time, he's older, he's, reti- he's retired. By this time, he's a professed Muslim, okay? And this is how he responds to that question. What does your religion mean to you? He said, one day we are all going to die. And God is going to judge our good deeds and our bad deeds. If your bad deeds outweigh the good, you will go to hell. If your good deeds outweigh the bad, then you're going to go to heaven. It's kind of like karma in Hinduism, right? I mean, it's not a bad definition for religion, but it's also a helpful way for us to understand that Christianity is not that. That's not Christianity. Christianity. I'm pausing because I think that needs to settle in because I think there's a lot of us that believe that. We walk around, even if we don't teach it and preach it and profess it out loud, we walk around with this idea, I just got to do more good than bad, and God will like me. That's not Christianity. That's not the message of the gospel, not at all. In fact, we do something here, we call our worship service, like during worship, you know, singing songs and we celebrate. You know why we do that stuff? Not because we've done, not, we don't celebrate around here because, wow, look how many, how good we are. We've done so much good and so much, so not as much bad. So we're just good. Let's celebrate the, the percentage, the 80% good that we've done over the 20% bad that we've not done, that we have done. We don't do that. We celebrate here because we have been recipients of the gospel of grace because we stand here knowing that I don't have the right to stand here. We stand here knowing that I don't have, I've not done, I've not worked hard enough to be able to receive the forgiveness that I have received. I have been a recipient of grace and because of that, I worship and I celebrate. Jesus, you have set me free. You have brought freedom into my life. Paul knows Paul knows the heaviness of religion. In fact, before Paul became a follower of Jesus, he was a Pharisee. Now, if like if religion had a professional team, they would be called the Pharisees. Seriously. I mean, they had they were amazing rule makers. And if the professional team was called Pharisees, then the apostle Paul would be their star player. In fact, he himself calls he calls himself, he says, I, am, I was a Pharisee among Pharisees. Like, I was a lead Pharisee. I was, I was better than all the others. And this is what religion does. It gives us a way to measure ourselves against others. In fact, this is how Paul talks about it in Galatians 1. He says, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. Notice he says this previous way of life. How intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. And then here's the comparison. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. See, I was better than them. That's what religion does. It's it's insidious, it's perverted, it makes you want to compare yourself to other people. He goes, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions, that is religion, of my father's. You see, Pharisees were extreme about, about, uh, with the law. They were always adding laws. In fact, there was existing laws that they would add more laws to. For example, um, the Ten Commandments. One of the, one of the laws of the Ten Commandments is you shall keep the Sabbath. Okay? Pharisees come along and say, yeah, that's a, that's a good law. Uh, let's make it better. <laughs> just, just a little side note if you read the bible and you ever come across something that you read and then you say well you know what i'm going to make that one better by adding something that's a problem that's exactly what these guys were doing so when he said they say the sabbath says keep the sabbath holy so they say well let's define that what does that mean to keep the sabbath holy and so they come up with a law and they say that on the sabbath you can only walk seven tenths of a mile And suddenly everybody's like looking at their Fitbit. Okay, how many steps have I, you know, because I don't want to sin on the Sabbath. And if I walk eight-tenths of a mile, I'm sinning. I've broken the law, and now I'm out of favor with God. That's how insidious this was. And that's exactly what they were doing. I mean, they they had all kinds of them. They had one where, like, if, uh, if a hen lays an egg on the Sabbath, you have to throw that egg out because the hen was working on the Sabbath. (laughs) Now, we laugh at that, and it's okay to laugh at that. But you know what? There's a long history in the church of doing exactly the same thing. Like the Bible says, you know, there shall be no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. That's a good rule. That's a good law. It's a good idea. We should honor that. But what does that mean? I mean, what does that mean? What does that mean in in uh you know first century palestine what did that mean in middle ages europe what did that, what does that mean in 20th century u.s and so because it's a little bit not specified we add to it right and so when i first became a christian i found out that there were words that i could not say because there shall be no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. So there was a whole list of words. These are words that no Christian can actually say, but that's, here's, that's not all. There's these words that you cannot say, but guess what? There's these words that you can say. These are legal words. I have no other better word than call them Christian cuss words. They're Christian cuss words. They're, it's okay to say this one, but it's not okay to say this one. And you might say, well, and in my mind, my new believer, mind, I'm like, but don't they mean the same thing? Yeah, 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 but whatever. Yeah, they do mean the same thing, but it's this is no unwholesome talk shall come out of your mouth. We do that too. In fact, Jesus kind of gives us an example of this in Luke chapter 11. Listen, let me tell you something. It's fine. It's fine for you as parents. It's fine for you as, for us as schools, as organizations to have rules. It is absolutely fine for you to say, don't do this, do that. But just don't attach Jesus to it. Don't say, if you do this or if you don't do that, then you are sinning, therefore you're missing God. Don't do that. In Luke 11, Jesus kind of gives us a good example of this. He, he, he goes to a Pharisee's house, a religious leader's house, and um, he doesn't wash his hands. Now, he knows, uh, it's not like an accident that he didn't wash his hands. He knows, he knows what the prevailing law is about ritual washing and making sure that you eat with clean hands but he doesn't wash his hands it's kind of like picking a fight with this guy <laughs> you know he shows up and and so they go in and you know you know the old testament never taught that you doesn't does not say anywhere that before you eat your food you have to wash your hands it doesn't say that anywhere but The Pharisees had added that as one of the rules and there was a lot of ceremonial purification and ritual washing that kind of stuff but they had added that before you can eat food you had to wash your hands a certain way so we would have a basin next to the entrance of the the house where you'd walk in and wash your hands and then go ahead and eat food Jesus knows that that's the prevailing rule but he decides I'm just going to go in I'm going to pick a fight (laughs) And so he knows what he's doing. He doesn't wash his hands. He sits down to eat. He starts digging in because you eat with your hands. He starts digging in with his hands. Like, mm, this is good. Hey, you want some? <laughs> and, and I could just see those, those religious leaders. They're, they're like puking. They're like grossed out. Like, can you believe this? He just came from outside, didn't wash his hands. He's eating his food. And I could just see one of them saying like, uh, the Lord says that you should wash your hands before you eat. And Jesus is like, no, I didn't say that. I never said that. <laughs> I would remember if I said that, but I don't ever remember saying that. And then in Luke 11, you'll find that he starts telling them off for all the rules that they're adding and burdening people with, putting them in these prisons of religion. There's nothing wrong with washing your hands, by the way. And there's nothing wrong with you parents having a rule for your kids to wash their hands before they eat. They're grubby, slimy, disgusting hands, right? <laughs> and parents, don't let your kids come to you and say, hey, Jesus didn't wash his hands. I, pff, I don't have to wash my hands, right? <clears throat> See, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, listen, those are, those are your rules, they're not my rules. So oftentimes we measure ourselves against others, right? I think another reason I think we're drawn to religion is because religion gives us a feeling of superiority. Like We feel better than somebody else if I can follow all of these rules. I feel better about myself. I feel better in comparison to... Some of you know that I, I try. I, a lot of times, un, not successfully, but I try to be humorous in my message. I try to say funny things. Like I said, not always successful at it, but I try. And, uh, but I remember early on when we were first started, we were at the Corville Rec Center, we were having service. There was a lady who was attending church then that she just didn't like. She thought she just hated my humor. She did. She And every Sunday would let me know. In fact, it got so bad that there was a time where I would like intentionally, there was a perfect spot to say something funny, but I would just not do it because I just didn't want to hear her come after and say, that was, that, was not, that was not appropriate, Pastor Rich. <laughs> you know, you should not say those things. Sometimes I have to be honest, sometimes it wasn't appropriate, but most of the time it was just funny, right? But every time, every time I said something funny, she'd come up to basically correct me she felt superior to me she felt she that she was in a position to tell me how i had done something wrong the straw that broke the camel's back though was one easter sunday we were i actually that easter Sunday. i was talking about this exact idea you know that that grace is greater than religion and um and i i, I wore a tie and, I, and I, there's some, sometimes on Easter Sundays I, wear, I do wear a tie but no, most of the time I don't but that particular Sunday I wore a tie with an intent I wore this tie and I had a, a, a sports coat on and I was talking about being, being set free from religion and I reached out and I grabbed some scissors and I had this tie on I grabbed some scissors and I cut the tie off and man did she come unglued over that <laughs> after service she came up to me and said I cannot believe you just did that I cannot believe you, you, you wasted that tie. That's so irresponsible of you. And I'm like, I'm telling you, it was 50 cents at goodwill. That's all I paid for it. I, I just, seriously, it was not a bad, no, no, no. I was just trying to make a point. That is just terrible that you did that. It's this idea of superiority. I gotta, I've got to correct you. I've got to make you right. I'm better than you. And that's what religion does. It gives us a method of measuring that, of feeling superior to others. Religion also provides a false sense of comfort. A lot of us like that. We feel like if we can follow the rules, observe the right rituals, it kind of gives us this false sense that we're in control of our eternal destiny. If I've done everything right, if I've followed all these rules, then, then yeah, I, I'm cruising towards heaven. Some of you might remember this. Um, Some of you might not, actually, because it happened in 1982. So uh, I'm not even going to ask the question. Um, But in in the the early 1980s, 1982, there was this thing called the Chicago um, Tylenol Murders. I don't know if you've heard of that, the Chicago Tylenol Murders. Um, What it was is that um, there were this extra strength Tylenol had been laced with potassium with potassium cyanide and so people seven people died from it the first one to die was a young 12 year old girl her she got up in the morning had a headache had fever her parents gave her some extra strength Tylenol just an hour later she passed away she was dead later that morning a postal worker uh, was not feeling well he took some extra strength Tylenol then he passed away and then his brother and his sister-in-law, they they were um, uh, they were mourning the death of of his of their brother, and um, they took extra strength Tylenol, and they also died from it. It was just tragic what happened. The investigation investigation went on. They looked into it, and they realized that the only thing that these people had in common was that they were taking extra extra strength Tylenol. And so they took all the Tylenol off, of, off the shelves. It totally changed how you package Tylenol. You know, like now it's nearly impossible to get into it, right? You break seals and all that kind of stuff. That's, that's what happened as a result of these, of these murders, right? What the police discovered is that this was not something that came from the plant. They discovered that there was somebody who was going into random stores and basically opening up Tylenol bottles and lacing them with potassium cyanide. That's what they discovered. And, uh, and so they, went, they took all the Tylenol off the shelves, if you remember that. I was a freshman in college. I remember like I didn't, I didn't need Tylenol, but I was just surprised that they were doing this such an extreme thing. Um, in Chicago, they went to extremes in that they, the police would canvas the city and they would yell from a bullhorn, do not take extra strength Tylenol. Do not take extra strength Tylenol. If you have extra strength Tylenol, turn it in. When I read this story, I, I couldn't help but think of what happens to the gospel when we try to attach religion to it. Like Tylenol is meant to take away pain, it's meant to reduce fever, it helps you. It's meant to help you. The gospel is meant to set us free, to take away pain. But when we add to it, It's like we're poisoning the gospel. When we add religion to it, we're poisoning the gospel. And so I just want to be clear. As a church, our hope around here is not in ourselves. Our hope around here is not that we're gonna, you're gonna if you come to Life Church, you're gonna join our ranks, and you're gonna be a part of, a, of this church. And we're gonna give you a whole list of things that you can do, and a whole list of things that you cannot do. And you just need to line up and do all of these things. And if you can, if you can just do more of the good stuff than the bad stuff, you're just in. You're a part of this. That's not that's not how we feel about it. Our hope here at Life Church is only in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And if I stand before God, I stand naked. I have nothing to give i don't stand before god on my own record if i stood before god on my own record this is what would happen i would be cast away but i stand before god because jesus paid it all his grace is sufficient his grace is greater than religion his grace is what's what brings freedom to each and every one of us and i say all this because I think oftentimes, even if we don't call our faith a religion, and even if you can sit here through my message and say, Amen, Rich, I, yeah, that's what you say. I, I get that. I believe that. I think we still struggle with being religious at heart. Somehow or another, we accomplish certain things in our faith. We get to a certain place in our faith. We feel good about ourselves. Then we see somebody who is not yet, and we like make ourselves... We we feel good not because we're in relationship with the Heavenly Father. We feel good because we're just better than them. And that's religion. And that's poison. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel is good news. And you know what the good news is? Is that you and I are free. Free. Free from religion. Amen. Let's all stand. Pastor Chris is going to come. He's going to we're going to end our service in a different way today, not uh, with an invitation per se. I, th- I think we're just trying to set the stage for Galatians, and we'll get into that in next couple of weeks. But one of the things that I want to say about, come on up, Chris, one of the things I want to say about, um, about this idea of freedom and this idea of grace, I'm telling you, it's since I have discovered in my own heart what it means to be set free through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that freedom that has created generosity in me. It's that freedom that's created inside of me the desire to for those that do not have it to have what I have. To give what I can give and that's why here at Life Church we want to be as generous as we can ever be. That's why we do Servolution. That's why we do Kingdom Builders. That's why we do so many other things around here, reaching out into our community because we have been recipients of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't deserve it. I can't earn it. It was freely given. And since I have freely received, I want to freely give.